Hi, Dad. Hi, Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high-control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? <laughs> well, maybe in my head. The thing is, though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. <laughs> well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hi, welcome to What Should I Think About? My name's Stephen and I'm really excited today to have a really interesting guest. I'm speaking to Darren Chalacombe and he is a researcher, professor and author in the area of terrorism. He's got a PhD in social psychology and is on the faculty for Fort Hayes State University and has had some um, experience, real world experience in senior intelligence in the USA. So um, there's a bit of background. Welcome to the show, Darren. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, you're welcome. Can I call you Darren? Is that all right? That's great. Cool. Good. Okay. So... um, We've never really talked to somebody like you before. We've never talked to an expert in terrorism and thinking about how the similarities and differences between cults and all of that. So really interested to talk to you today. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, just to give us a bit of context, why you're interested in this stuff? Sure. So my... Like many people, I grew up in uh, in a religious organization, um, a Pentecostal church, um, and so I've been kind of familiar with how uh, traditional Christian evangelical circles circles work. Right. Uh, after I um, after graduating and moving on, I, I ended up going and getting my my bachelor's and master's in psychology, uh, focused on social psychology. And it was then that I uh, was recruited to work for the United States government in, in a um, intelligence area. During that time period, um, when I worked for a, a U.S. intelligence agency, I um, I got really interested in how cults worked. I you know I grew up in you know born and grew up in the '80s and such, and so um, I you know kind of had heard about Jim Jones, had heard about some of you know some of those type of type of cults. Of course, I was around when uh, when the Branch Davidians and then um, you know Heaven's Gate. And so I'm very familiar with with that. In fact, I, I wrote a paper when I was in um, doing a bachelor's degree on these on the, those three cults in, in particular. So I've always been kind of interested in this area. But working in the intelligence space, um, most of my work was on was on terrorism, uh, not only international but but we, what we call domestic terrorism or U.S. based terrorism. Mm-hmm. And when I in that area in that space, what we would end up seeing is that there's a uh, a lack of, at the time, there was a lack of really good academic research in in that field, um, especially for how recruitment takes place, and then you know additionally uh, how people are able to get out or um, uh, de-radicalize yeah. from these organizations. And so, knowing knowing the space, uh, the cult research space, and kind of getting more familiar with that with the ICSA. Um, 
you know, there's there's a a large group of uh, a large bit of information in that area, and that's what kind of propelled me into kind of tr- trying to connect the, the dots between what we can learn from the cult research and apply to the terrorism research area. Yeah, um, so you, you must have started to spot these similarities, and that that was really the um, the theme of your presentation at the International Cultic Studies Association conference which is where I, I saw you and I thought, this is really interesting. And your your uh, talk was about the synergies between the two. So let, let's just jump straight into that question because um, we can sort of dive off from there. What what are the synergies? What, what are the similarities that you've noticed that you've seen in your research between these two phenomena? Well, there, there are many. My, my focus for, uh, for what the research that I've done mainly was focused on on recruitment um right. i've always been interested in how uh how an individual gets gets yeah. radicalized and you know looking at, at the large group of information when it comes to to cult cult research you know we have um and a lot of times people come in because of family members or friends this and that um we don't see a lot of we haven't seen a lot of those same uh inflection points or entry points uh with with terrorism spaces as as we did with cult cult groups mm. um, there are still the friend the friend type things that we see but a lot of times we're we're still seeing the synergies uh, kind of relate to more along the lines of multiple people which is something that that both cults and uh, and terrorism spaces tend to have you know who are these vulnerable people uh why are they vulnerable and then and then how you know, recruiters in both spaces, how they can use that vulnerability exploited in order to bring them into the fold or, or get them involved in, in that organization. So that's kind of where where I started from from that from that point. Okay, that makes sense. So what what sort of vulnerabilities would we be looking at? Are we talking personality traits or are we talking situational? What sort of things did you see? So we saw we saw a lot of people that have um, people that have some sort of trauma in in their life, um, previous a history of trauma in the past. Um, we also saw uh, people that are uh, just just alone, looking for some sort of connection, mm. um, and that's kind of what we when we're looking at both of those, we we see uh, both terrorism and and cult groups tend to target those people. Um, what we don't see uh, when it comes to that is necessarily uninformed or gullible individuals. Uh, you know, certainly there's going to be some, you know, some room for that. But mm. um, I think the research has shown a lot of the people kind of have a have a better have a good idea or are a little more aware of what they're doing when they go into that here. Mm. Um, but once they've, you know, once the somebody has exploited their vulnerability, then it then it goes on and, and they go through the traditional steps of manipulating them into, into getting them more involved in the cult or terrorist group. Yeah, that's, um, that, that's interesting. So I, I just want to, I suppose, reflect on what you said there about um, it's not, it, it, it's more about the situation they find themselves in than it is that they're particularly gullible or, or easily, convinced you know it's um it's a process where i think in your presentation you you talked about um people may be exploiting personal situations where they maybe poverty is involved or um, other other things like that that might 
um, make them particularly vulnerable to ideas about, uh, you know, finding some meaning and purpose in life, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, everyone wants to feel connected in some, in some way. And, and just, just like with cults, they, you know, they find those, those people that are, that don't feel connected and, and exploit that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking at uh, some of the notes I took, uh, from your, presentation Darren um, and there's, there's a lot of really interesting diagrams that, that you've drawn from various bits of uh, research and I was I was going to ask you there's a there's a diagram there call employ use adopt utilize I, I, I'm aware that I'm just asking you to remember things off the top of your head so um, you know uh, when people ask me to do that I always get slightly afraid so don't um, don't worry if you can't remember all the detail but um, can you tell us a little bit about this? So this is like a bit of a, would, I, would you call it a process of of how cults might um, get people involved in these groups? Right. There's in in the in the space um, we've come in the terrorism space um, specifically. There have been yeah. multiple different types of uh, radicalization processes. So ideas yeah. on how people. Uh, how people move through getting getting radicalized. I mean, we, yeah. we've seen kind of the same thing in cults. So the uh, the the ones I think you're talking about are um, there's the two that I that I specifically mentioned was this um, Magadam's staircases, and then I have Macaulay and Moskalinko's Moskalinko's uh, uh, levels. Okay. But they're the way these are set up is that there's you know. Uh, and individuals are progressing through there, you know, that they get familiar with the group and then they get, you know, get involved, go to a couple meetings and they, you know, kind of go from there. Um, so there's a, there's a, a step process to that. Um, I actually, I, while it's useful to some degree to kind of have that step process, um, I, I do feel like people um, tend to vacillate between or become more cyclic and so there's, I, I, I have a theory that, that I proposed during that, during that presentation, um, that people are more, that it's more secular process mm. that people during different stages, they may be more passionate about something or maybe less passionate about them. Um, but it's not like going through, um, like Alcoholics yeah, like Anonymous or something like this where there's steps. Yeah, yeah. Not, yeah. you know, it's not, you're going to, you're going to you're going to go up, you're going to, you know, you get more passionate, more radicalized, and then you're also going to have experiences where you're not going to be as radicalized. And yeah. that's what a lot of those step processes don't seem to take in, take in uh, I think that's so, so true. I mean, we, we love a good step-by-step process to simplify everything, but it oversimplifies it, doesn't it, often? Um, and, yeah, our thinking doesn't really work that way, does it? Um, you, you've got catalysts and inhibitors, I think, in your your model, which creates this cyclical process of, I suppose, vacillating between um, things happen, increases your level of commitment, um, and then something else happens that inhibits that level of commitment. Is that is that what you're saying? You're kind of going between these moments of, yeah, really, this is really for me, and I'm really, really enthusiastic about it, um, you know, give me the chance to do something and then something might inhibit that um, perhaps down to some positive thing that's happened to them. Is, there, is this what you're saying? It's a kind of vacillation between those positions. 
I'd like to think that this is this is accurate. Again, it's just a it's a theory, but yeah, there there does appear, and 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 even in the in the cults, or even in just religious circles, in, in that sense, there you know there are going to be times in which people um, are more more radicalized because of certain situations, and then conversely, uh, maybe you know like it, it say just traditional religious, um, you know, you go to a you start going to different to like a, a revival service or something like that, where you're going a couple days, a couple nights a week uh, versus time when you, you know, you don't go to church for a number of, a number of weeks or months, you're going to be inhibited um, yeah. in the, in the, whatever the process is. So I, I like to look at it as being the similar process that you're, that there are um, aspects that will encourage you to become more radicalized and then aspects that will kind of inhibit that in mm. other ways. Yeah, so uh, my my master's was in organizational psychology, and um, that we did a lot. One of the things that I've I don't know whether, whether you've noticed the same thing going to the ICSA conference, but there's very little in there around well what I would describe as organizational psychology or cognitive approaches to psychology, um, which I think it's kind of maybe a bit of a weakness that, that we don't have all of those different approaches, those perspectives being applied to cults. Um, and, and I guess um, I would say the same about other groups um, that are of a similar ilk. Um, in, in cognitive uh, models, you often get uh, moderators and mediators, don't you, for how people think. So you have certain things that will push people away from a certain behavior and then other things that will pull people towards a certain behavior. Um, and I think that's really interesting. That's the sort of thing you're introducing here. You're saying it's a dynamic process where there are things that are pulling and there's things that are pushing and um, it's, it's all the time changing really because the situation is changing and the inputs are changing. Right. Um, yeah. Is that, is, am I on the right lines there? No, exactly. That's this is kind of birthed from from that cognitive aspect of psychology there. Yeah, yeah. I, I know when I was a, a Jehovah's Witness, we'd have. Um, so I guess from my own experience, there'd be like periods where you go to like a convention. So we'd have a a big outdoor convention once a year where we'd meet in a football stadium, and there would be like twenty thousand of us there. And that was obviously at that point you're really you're on a high. You are very much committed. Um, then when you go back to work or you go back on knocking on doors and having the door slammed in your face and so on, then then you you, you know you can feel that that level of enthusiasm start to wane so the organizations themselves i guess are quite aware of those uh waxing and waning um so do you notice if uh, these groups seem to have any countermeasures to this um to to sort of deploy people when they want them are they that smart or is it just kind of one of those things that happens do you think that's a really hard question to, to answer um the, sure. from this from uh, not only research but just the practical uh, being involved in some of this, um, a lot of the groups don't have uh, aren't as organized. A lot of the and I'm speaking specifically of terrorist groups, but a yeah. lot of them aren't organized as well as say our, our cult groups are, as far as having a really strong leadership model and and them them keeping in touch. You know, there's going to be that that type of interaction, but a lot of that, you know, it goes back to just traditional emotional intelligence and just being aware of who who is around you. Um, 
so I, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure if I can answer that. I, but that does, it would make sense that that would be the case. But I don't know if that actually uh, ends up happening as much as what we would see in uh, what I imagine we see in cult, mm. in cult situations. If you're enjoying the podcast and you'd like to support it, you can do so in a few different ways. Firstly, leaving a rating or a review really helps get the podcast noticed. So please, if you can, give a review on whatever type of application you're listening to. You can also become a patron for just £1 or $1.50 a month. And there's only one tier. And finally, please tell people about the show. We know that word of mouth is a really important way of people finding out about what should I think about. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the discussion. Because I guess um, modern day terrorism is is very, um, it's kind of small cells, am I right? So correct me if I'm wrong, these are small cells where, the and, and sometimes it's quite a loose affiliation with just an, an ideology that, that connects them. So um, unlike, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses will have a central, have a central governing body or, you know, Pentecostal churches might have a, a big church where everybody goes and there's, there's people making decisions. This is a bit different, isn't it? I think um, it's much looser uh, in its, the way that it operates. Yeah, absolutely. Over the last 15, 20 years, we've, uh, we've moved from these large, um, you know, Hezbollah and and Al Qaeda and and all these large terrorist groups. Now, certainly, um, we're talking about Westerns, you know, in the Western world, at least, to more individuals that are just Following us, following the suit. Now that there are going to, you know, as you as you know, across the entire the world, you're going to have in the landscape. You're going to have groups like ISIL and and other groups that are uh, that actually are large terror groups that probably have a good structure. But Mm -hmm. um, if we're comparing those and what we're more interested in, or what I'm more interested in, was in the Western world, um, we we are seeing just you know single people that are loosely affiliated that are radicalized by ideas um, from maybe larger groups, but maybe not necessarily as connected to those groups as what we may see or what we may have seen in the past. So again, I understand that it's not necessarily a linear process, but maybe you could flesh out for us a little bit, because I think this is the, it's always a shock and a surprise when somebody carries out a terrorist atrocity and, or it often is a surprise because how does somebody like this do something like that is kind of the, the, the question that happens in the media, you know, how does this young man end up committing this atrocity? What drives somebody to do something like that? And I know you can't give a simple answer to that, but could you give us a bit of understanding of, of how you can find an individual, how these groups find an individual and, get them to do something that most of us would think oh, we would never do something so appalling what 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 are some of the tricks that they're using 
a lot of my research is focused on what what we're what we call uh, sovereign citizens, and they're, I, I, they're it's a what we consider domestic group in in the U.S. At least it's not. Um, I, I hate to use the word group because it's more of a collective of, of like-minded individuals and yeah. and they they may or may not be loosely affiliated. But what we've seen in the past um, with some of the incidents, because in, in, in the past 20 years in, in the U.S., we've had two, three dozen incidents where people um, – where sovereign citizens have resorted to violence um, – what we so, have so, what, sorry sovereign mm-hmm. citizens this is a this is a, a particular ideology is it what what what's this about what's what, what's this sure um so when 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 i refer to sovereign citizens what um the in the us there are individuals that don't believe that the the current us government is operating um legally um so they are they have depending on what belief structure they uh the, the individual is part of they believe the U.S. government, usually between the time of, of the U.S. Civil War, so um, you know, 1860s time period, to about 1920 when the U.S. went off the um, the gold standard for, for our money. Sometime between there, uh, the, the U.S., the current U.S. government started using uh, citizens as collateral for debts. And so... Um, me being a U.S. citizen, I then am actually a I'm collateral for for these debts that the U.S. government has. In order to free myself from that, in order to become sovereign or you know uh, separate from the government, I can I can go through a series of processes where I um, submit certain documentation and then I I become free from that. Um, this freedom allows uh, this freedom allows me to get away with uh, not having to worry about whatever financial obligations that I might have had in the past, and you know, additionally, I won't have to pay taxes because I'm a sovereign citizen. Uh, this actually this ideology exists in, in uh, several you know in other countries in the UK as well and Canada. Um, we see, we see similar aspects of that where again they don't they believe that if they can just announced that they're sovereign, that they're not part of the government anymore, and that they're independent, you know, and kind of go go from there. Um, does that make sense as far as where I'm describing that? Yeah, thank you. Um, okay. I understand that now. Yeah, great. Thank okay. you. No, sorry. Um, along with uh, along with this, so in the in the in the U.S. at least with the so- with the sovereign movement or with individuals that are part of that, and this has been going on for you know for many many years. Um, but the individuals that have been part of that, again, they they don't feel obligated to pay taxes. They don't feel obligated to follow uh, certain procedures that we, that we all just tend to take for granted, like getting a driver's license or registering our car, um, because they don't feel like they they have to because they're sovereign. They're they're not part of that, and so they they will go about you know not following these public order type um, type regulations. And normally that doesn't cause too much trouble. I mean, somebody paying their not paying their taxes probably isn't that in the grand scheme of things probably isn't that big of a deal. What we run across is that when when sovereigns are uh, challenged on their viewpoint by someone in authority, say law enforcement or a public official, um, when they're challenged, it, they there's additional stressors that occur, and there have been times in which these stressors have um, empowered them to act in a more violent sense. So, uh, one of, one of the, um, 
most of the most of the incidents, with the exception of I think one or two, have been instances in which uh, these sovereigns have uh, these sovereign citizens have been uh, challenged by by law enforcement or by a public official on something, and through that process, then. Um, they, they act violent. An example of this: there was a there was an incident in in Alabama uh, about ten years ago where an individual was dropped off a stray dog at a pet fostering program, and when they were dropping it off, the uh, the people who run the program asked for the person's identification. Well, this individual didn't have identification, and they didn't want to you know they didn't want to say their name or anything like that. And so it ended up where the uh, the fostering program they called law enforcement. Law enforcement comes up or shows up, and through that process, then it ends up where uh, the the individual who's dropping off the the um, stray dog ended up getting shot. Just weird turn of events, but it was something where they were challenged, and they because they have this belief system that they don't need to follow these laws because they are sovereign. They'll, uh, it escalates. Yep, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Wow, that's that's really interesting. I think I've I think I heard about that um, that case. Um, yeah, I, I'm just going back to looking at your diagram again because you, you kind of described that this is like the incident. This is like the triggering action. This is the uh, yeah intervention of law enforcement or something like that. And then at that point, they've kind of. I guess committed themselves to something, or in before that, the little you've got a transition phase there where maybe they've committed a, a sort of minor crime, which I guess would be your deciding not to get a driver's license or something right. like that. Yeah. yeah, and then maybe they get stopped by the police and asked to demonstrate that they have a driver's license, and at that point, it is is where the incident happens. Yeah. So as as you know, there there have been you know there's a handful of of groups that have traditionally been looked at as being cults, but they also have committed yeah. you know, acts of terrorism. And if you look at those, they you know all of them tend to have some there's some sort of a an incident or triggering action that mm. that they've you know that's encouraged them to to do that. Um, we um, I think on the paper or what we've looked at in the past was talking about the. Um, Oh, the, not the Maharishis, but the the Rajneesh case. Yeah, the Rajneesh. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's um, a really and, good one. Yeah, and in that in that case, I mean, well, first it was you know the first bioterrorism incident in the U.S. But besides that, the you know the reason they they did that was because they wanted to gain control over um, over the public. Um, like the council, the local council. Yeah, and let's just for our listeners, let's just um, give them a bit of background on that because not everybody will be aware of that case. Um, so, I'm actually going to be interviewing somebody, an ex-member of that group, um, in the next oh, few weeks. So, I'm really looking forward to listening to her story. It's going to be really interesting. But um, yeah, so I'm a bit fuzzy on the details. But from, from what I understand, it um, Darren, they um, they set up this kind of they took over this sort of area, didn't they? This um, this group um, originally from India, but they came to a part of America. So maybe you can help me with this. I, I... Yeah. So there was a Indian Bhagwan, uh, Sri Rajneesi, um, or Rajneesius. Uh, he was intelligent, you know, enlightened master, very good at uh, manipulating people. He immigrated to the United States in uh, 1981. Um after pressure from the from the Indian government, 
so him and some of his followers they set up a uh, set up some land or set up on a plot of land in um, Oregon, Wasco County, Oregon. But they called themselves the Rajnishis. Um, they wanted to create their own self-contained town within this within this county, um, but they were unable to to really operationalize that because they were having some issues with the county commission or the local the local council. And so in 1984, they desired to take over that commission um, by by voting, you know, getting voted into there. They proposed a couple different schemes in order to do that. Uh, what they ended up settling on was that to use biological agents, or in this case, it was salmonella, um, to make some of the Wasco County citizens sick in order to prevent them from voting in the November election. So they went around to uh, several different salad bars and other places in uh, other restaurants and contaminated those um, those areas with with yeah. salmonella and ended up being, I think, about seven hundred, a little over seven hundred and fifty uh, people became sick from this incident. Um, but that, yeah, it's it's just it's just staggering, isn't it? It's um, absolutely, yeah. As they say, you couldn't really make it up. Um, yeah, there's of course there's the Netflix series if people want to watch the Wild Wild Country, I think it's called that that describes some of this. A very long sort of documentary, but it does go into that detail. Yeah, but um so yeah, yeah, this is a this is a group who that you could quite easily describe as a cult. Um, but you have this this and they see themselves as separate. So I suppose that's another thing that cults do, like the sovereigns um, that you've described. We are separate from the world. We are not part of it. We are both maybe physically, but certainly legally or whatever separate. Um, that creates then a, a mentality that I'm not, you know, I don't need to obey these laws or I don't need to do this thing or that thing. Um, and then when that is challenged in some way, when they're not able to get what they want or what they think they should have, that's then a sort of incident that um, that can move them to the next level or to the level of actually taking an act of terrorism, um, which is fascinating. I, I, I think that's absolutely fascinating. There, there's one or two other cases you you raise in your presentation as well, actually. Yeah, we I talked about the um, uh, well, Jim Jones obviously. Yeah. In, in in that instance, I mean, it's pretty clear when uh, when the rep- representative uh, Leo Ryan visited uh, Jonestown in Guyana. Yeah. Um, a couple of of the People's Temple um, were going to defect, and you know, on their way to the airport, that's when uh, Jones you know, acted out, had, had the individuals at the, at the camp drink the Kool-Aid and then also sent a group uh, assassination squad basically to stop the, um, stop the defectors and the, and the representative from leaving. And mm-hmm. so, you know, again, there's some sort of a challenge there. Um, when you look at the, um, uh, the Shinrikyo's, uh, um, Shinrikyo group, yeah. um, you know, sa- same thing. There's, uh, th- there was some sort of precipitating factor that kind of, kind of came along with that, that it's, I, it seems to differ in, in a way, Stephen, from say Al Qaeda or some of these larger groups, where they just they ultimately. I mean, there's there's reasons behind why they're doing what they're doing, but ultimately their grievance narrative is they they don't like you know the Western world, they don't like the U.S., they don't like mm-hmm. you know um, 
that type of you know contemporary society and so that's what they're trying to they're trying to fight against versus somebody where in you know a sovereign gets pulled over and asked to provide their id and then instead there's a there's a shootout you know something like that that's that's where i think the difference kind of lies where um it, it seems a lot of these groups at least from the ones that i've looked at they're more um they're the less planned they're more just there's something that happens and because they're in that state of mind mm-hmm. it triggers them to to act out i guess we should and i know you're not suggesting this so but i just want to say that we're, we're not suggesting that you know cults generally go into this phase um i know there's concern sometimes with what so jehovah's witnesses have a very ap- apocalyptic view of what's coming you know but then lots mm-hmm. of churches and religions do um but they they don't believe that it's anything to do with them in terms of actually making that happen so it's it's god who's going to do it we're, we're just going to sit back and wait for god to make all of that happen um so you know i think there's a difference between that and a group that says it's god's will that we um you know get rid of this nation from uh, occupying our land or from um you know living in this part of the world or uh we, we we don't want to see gay marriage or we don't you know these are different sorts of approaches aren't they or different sorts of groups i would suggest um yeah yeah it's, and that's the struggle i guess with with mm. even calling groups labeling them as cults and in, in that that yeah. there's some you know people people tend to think okay oh, what's a cult okay what's well, going to be like jonestown well no you know most of the time yeah. it's not no right absolutely yeah 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 um Okay, that's um, that's interesting. There was something I was just going to ask you, and it literally just popped out of my head. Oh yeah, you mentioned um, Stein in your work, so um, we've had Alexandra Stein on on the show to talk about her um, ideas around attachment theory and how um, these groups, cults, create a disorganized attachment that that essentially creates sets up this both love of the leader and terror of the leader um i don't did you did you look at that in relation to these sorts of groups is that relevant or is that just am i just um picking on something that isn't relevant there no yeah i know i I've, um stein has some really great work out there that, that kind of goes along with this um specifically you know talking about the the threefold process and setting the stage um, for the creation of a disorganized attachment bond to the group, mm. and and other areas of that, um, their science supports you know the, with a lot of different qualitative elements in there. Um, mm. you know, specifically, she's you know, the Mujahideen Khalik or MEK is one of the groups that she talks about. Um, there, it's it's fascinating in, in that um, kind of the work that that uh, science has done in this area, um, but. Yeah, I, uh, I I haven't had the opportunity to actually um, to um, meet and, and you know talk uh, to her. Specifically. I bet that would be a really interesting conversation. Yeah, um, yeah she's she's absolutely brilliant. Um, I um, the other thing I, I guess there's these relationships that are, are set up, um, and you probably see the same in crime crime syndicates and so on, where where the the leader. Um, is is this figure of both love and devotion but also fear and of course the group makes that happen because they they insist that essentially you separate yourself 
from the rest of your former community. And that's part of what you've observed within some of these groups, isn't it? That you cut, um, that you cut off your, your friends, your former friends and relatives, and, and you become very much um, dependent upon this group and attached to this leader, but they are the source of both love and fear. And it's this that she describes as the brainwashing process, which I think is, is really interesting. Yeah, it's that McClellan um, from the 1970s and 80s uh, viewpoint on, on this. Yeah, that these groups, you know, there's that love and fear, but also, you know, aspect to leaders. Yeah, interesting. Um, in the UK, we have this, um, the government some time ago now set up this prevent strategy. I don't know if you're familiar with that. So I, I don't know. It's probably unfair of me to ask you your opinion of that, but there has been quite a lot of discussion about how successful it is. And um, it, I mean, I don't know how we go about measuring how successful some of these um, processes are. Do you have any observations about the ways that governments around the world try to disrupt these processes of um, radicalization and recruitment what what are they what are we doing and is it working and what should we do better sure so um the in so i'm, I'm familiar uh, briefly with the prevent um, process but uh in the u.s we have we call it uh countering violent extremism or it's kind of the same like our figurehead and our uh department of homeland security kind of helps to run that but the idea behind it is that we're encouraging uh, the development of between leaders in the community with individuals that, that may potentially become radicalized, that you yeah. know, those vulnerable individuals. And if it's uh, you know, religious figures or school officials or even law enforcement, having that positive, communicate, positive connection with them, um, that helps to – I think you know, there's, there's benefit to helping to prevent that. Um, Sadly, it's um, we're, we're always gonna we're gonna you know as you know, I'm sure you know we're gonna come across that uh, limitation of just not having the manpower to, mm. to do that um, in order to you know to form those and there's always gonna be people that that fall through the cracks and it's mm. those that, you know or purposefully want to fall through those cracks and, and it's mm. those individuals that um, that end up doing something you know horrific is mm. kind of how that goes. So ra radicalization. Do you just want to clarify this term? So you you separate radicalization from recruitment in your presentation. Let's just nail that. So radicalization is <laughs> in a sentence, uh, Darren. <laughs> so I'm joking. No. Um, when I look at radicalization as uh, somebody becoming more. Polar, polarized towards uh, the viewpoint or mindset of a of, of a certain topic or, or group. Okay. Um, so your um, when you know when we talk about recruitment, I, the way that I look, the way I like to look at that is um, you know, bringing bringing you into so say with Jehovah's Witness, um, bringing you into the group, you know, getting you yeah. involved with that. But once you're in getting you radicalized to, to the point of like, okay, well now you want to bring more people into, into the fold or you okay. want to lead groups. That's kind of the radicalization aspect of it. Okay. So it's that extra step of commitment and, and so on. Okay. Uh, yeah. I'd like to think so. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, 
so I I imagine that um, groups that are already suspicious of authority, that already feel like they're outsiders, that feel like they've got grievances, sometimes genuine uh, grievances, I guess. Um, so these are these are fertile grounds for recruitment into groups because they're more easily radicalized they they recognize things that they uh see as wrong in society and that they're um they're at the wrong end of of injustices and so on and and this makes them easier to radicalize so i guess one of the things that these strategies like prevent are supposed to be doing is to reduce that level of grievance and feeling that they are uh, actually part of society and, and so on and but I guess it's not in the interests of these groups to let that happen so they're all the time trying to uh, to disrupt the activities of anti-terrorism activity like prevent I guess is that a fair description of what's going on? Right. I, I would say that's, that's fair. Yeah. Um, because the, these groups, the, the individuals that are coming in, they, they may or may not already have, have these shared um, viewpoints about, um, about something. We, we, I'll give you an example. We had a, um, there was an incident of when I, when I was with the uh, U S government, we, we had a, there was a young, a young gentleman who had watched, there was a movie that came out about, um, orcas, orca whales that are in captivity in uh, different Sea World, I think is is what it is. Um, I th- and I can't think of the name of the uh, of the documentary. But this gentleman watched this documentary and then went on a tirade and started writing to the Japanese embassy in the U.S. about how he was going to come there and and do some horrible things to it. Um, We'd never heard of this person before. Never had any problems. You know, nobody knew anything about it. But because he had watched this, watched this one documentary, mm-hmm. and just became passionate about this. So before he even knew there was a grievance, before he even knew there was something like that, he, you know, he was fine. And then, then he gets encouraged into this. He finds out about what's going on, and then becomes impassioned and, and radicalized. And then he takes that next step to, to make threats against uh, an organization. So that's kind of. That's what we're talking about, um, mm. and that again is that the fertile, like we were talking about, the fertile ground. Mm. Um, there's, who knows what that triggering factor will be when it, when it comes down to those vulnerable people that have that fertile ground, and and you know where they start finding out about what's going on with you know with cattle manipulate cattle mutilation or this and that yeah. in organizations. Yeah. So okay, so um, right, I mean, I I could quite literally talk to you all evening darren about this um it's it's fascinating stuff um i guess that the final thing i wanted to ask you about was the um how people can get out of of these groups both terrorist and cultic sort of situations if you've got any insights into that first of all i don't know what your thoughts are so uh, um i i like to think that we have a good idea of how to do that but I'm, I don't. I don't believe. I think in the cold world, we have a we have a better idea of, of how to do that. Um, certainly, you've, you know, certainly the research from uh, my Ben's Cotter and other individuals that you know, and probably in your your case too, mm-hmm. that have gotten now on on how they do that. The, some of the struggles I think that we we find uh, with with terror organizations is that you have um, 
I guess they're more, you know, somewhat more ubiquitous um, to 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 find them uh, to to be part of the organization, or you know, like you're, um, you could just join a, a Twitter or a Facebook group or or switch, you know, whatever whatever it is, and and kind of re-engage with the group itself um, versus having to actually go to a facility or, or that type of thing. Mm. Um, I know that in, in the past, my my research in the past. Um, I've looked at gangs and looking at how uh, gang members, you know, how they jump out of gangs, and you know, part of part of that is removing them from that situation. Yeah. Um, but even still, once you remove, it doesn't. It's not going to, you know, they, you may move them to another city or something like that. But the individuals that are in that area, they've already felt if they they were part of it, they've already felt that kind of connection, and they mm-hmm. they seek that out, and so they're going to continue to seek that out. So unless you're replacing it with something. Right. Or you you really uh, do some good therapy with them in order to get them so that they they don't feel like they need to be part of it a uh, part of that. Uh, then I don't you're gonna I think you're gonna struggle with how um, how to de radicalize them. Does that yeah yeah that, that I mean I think it is it is something that um, I guess cult ex cult members always struggle with. You know we we have people that are loved ones still members of those groups for instance and we we want to know what the best thing to do is and it's never you're never sure you know on the one hand by intervening you might um you might actually bring them out but on the other hand you might push them further in and so um you know there's there's lots of fear around that i i know we've spoken to um pat ryan from cult 101 um who's given us some really good insights into that sort of thing uh, i think we've learned along the way you know in the bad old days of uh, deprogramming and so on um there were some pretty unpleasant things done really in kidnapping people and just basically um sort of doing to them what again what had already been done to them in some respects and um that seems like a uh, and not necessarily a very ethical way of doing it. But yeah, I mean, one of the things that often ex-cult members talk about is training people, helping people to use critical thinking um, to, you know, evaluate truth claims and, and so on. Um, that always seems to me like a great idea, but um, a lot easier said than done, you know, um, because if it was that easy, then we'd have all done it by now. <laughs> you know, right. Everybody thinks they're a great critical thinker, don't they? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, um, what have you got in the future? Um, are you doing more research? Is uh, what's, your, what's your plans in this area? Are you looking more into this? Or? I'll probably do some more follow-ups. Part of um, I, I've been looking at, um, I've been approved to do a study on interviewing uh, sovereign citizens, specifically looking at their recruitment um, mm. and to see where where they're finding out about about this and how they're getting how they're getting recruited and radicalized. Um, but that's that's hard. Just like with anything, it's hard to find somebody willing to talk to you about this. Um, mm. and, and so you're you know I've come across that. But most of my other research has been more on on just on sovereigns and, and how uh, how we can prevent or post-stick them from um, doing violent activity. It's a really interesting subject. It's not something I knew much about. I mean, now you've described that to us, um, it makes a lot of sense of references that you sometimes see in films and uh, American TV shows um, that absolutely kind of closes some loops there for me. So yeah, that's really, really interesting. Uh, You should write a book about it, Darren. That that would be great. (laughs) Thanks, Emma. Let me take that out. Thank you. 
Good. Right. Okay. Well, um, I think all, all that remains really is for me to say thank you very much for joining us today. It's been really, really interesting. Um, I'll, I don't, is there anywhere for us to direct people to uh, your work or anything like that? Or um... Yeah, St- uh, Stephen. Well, first, thanks for the invitation. Um, I, I don't post or the stuff that I post as far as research. I, I have a Twitter account. It's just uh, okay. I think it's kansas or ks researchers what what it is okay. i can send that to you um please and then, um I, but it, that's normally where i where i publish or will post links to some of the research that i'm doing right. um but yeah no i appreciate the opportunity to to meet with you it's been fascinating to hear more about about this brilliant thank you very much excellent um thank you darren What Should I Think About is an Evil Sheep production. 